2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Verse number 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Paul, where we are here is right after Acts 19 into the beginning of Acts 20. Paul is leaving um, Ephesus because of the riot that's taking place. His ministry's over there. It's done. He moves on to Troas. He makes it to Troas by land. And this will be the second time that Paul goes to Troas. The first time that he goes to Troas is on his first or second missionary journey when he leaves and goes to the mainland because he and Barnabas got into a tussle over John Mark. He takes Silas and he goes the mainland and ends up uh, can't go north, can't go south, can't go west, uh, can't go east. You can't go to Asia. You can't go to Bithynia, and you must continue to go west. And the furthest point you can go west before you hit water is Troas. He picks up Doctor Luke in Troas because we find that in our passage in the book of Luke 16, Luke 13, that um, the we endeavor to go into Macedonia, indicating that it was in Troas that Luke was picked up by the Apostle Paul. Paul is here in Troas for the second time, and Paul is looking for Titus. He is on his way to meet Titus, supposedly in Troas, but Titus doesn't make it to Troas. He's going to eventually find him in Macedonia, most likely in Philippi. Paul is hurting. Paul's having to leave Ephesus. He's discouraged. His heart is broken, and he's kind of defeated. He makes it to Troas, and he blows right out of Troas. When he goes across the Aegean Sea and meets Titus in Philippi, he continues to go down to Corinth, his desire from Corinth was to go to Jerusalem from the port city of Cancrea where Phoebe was from. It was at that particular time that Paul in Acts 20 was in Corinth that he wrote the book of Romans and gave the book of Romans to Phoebe and Phoebe was to take it to the church at Rome while on business in that city. 
So Paul's doing a lot. He wants to go by water from Corinth to Jerusalem. Word got out that they were going to assassinate Paul. And so Paul goes back on the land, back through Corinth and Berea to Philippi. And at Philippi, he picks up Dr. Luke. And they come to Troas, where they're meeting in an upper chamber where Eutychus is going to fall out the window and die. The church had already been formed when Paul comes back around. The church hadn't been formed during his first missionary journey, so it's likely that the Apostle Paul here starts the church at Rome, I mean at Troas, even though he's discouraged and he's hurting. He doesn't stay very long. And as a result, the church will suffer for that, but he will come back around. He's hurting and he's heading into the mainland to meet his friend. Ministry to Paul, would, he would certainly say, it's certainly a blessing. It is certainly a privilege. But that is not all. The call to serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is also an invitation to discouragement, difficulty, sorrow, grief, and even despair. Uh, Coretta and I went to Florida to see our grandchildren, and we drove from there to Louisiana, 11 and a half hour run, to spend time with her mother. And every time to Louisiana, my desire is to go out into the country where she lives and ride on roads that nobody rides on, it seems like, and go into areas where there's rice fields and crawfish, um, you know, uh, traps and, and just get alone with God. And it seems like every time I've ever gone down there, God has met a need and given me something from his word to help me. And about the time, about a day before we were going to leave Louisiana and go back to Jacksonville, I just said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I guess, I, I guess that, I guess that they just don't have anything for me this, this, this time. And in my devotions out there at, at a cemetery, at the family cemetery in a town called Swallow, S-O-I-L-E-A-U, French, where my mother-in-law was born and raised. They only have a cemetery and a uh, community center about the size of this building right here, this, this auditorium. That's it. There's nothing else to that town. And so I sat there and I read, and I read in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, and I said, Lord, how can you encourage a preacher and encourage me? And I I read this passage and listened to a bunch of messages around it and I, I heard this letter read to me and I said, I got to get that letter. And so I'm going to read to you a letter of a pastor friend, pastor to his friend that went to Bible college with him and then continue on. Dear Jim, I'm through. Yesterday, I handed in my resignation to take effect at once, and this morning I began work for the land company. I shall not return to the pastorate. 
I think I can see in your heart as you read these words and behold, not a little disappointment, if not disgust. I don't blame you at all. I'm somewhat disgusted with myself. Do you recall the days in Bible college when we talked of the future and painted pictures of what we were to do for the kingdom of God? We saw the boundless need for an unselfish Christian service and longed to be out among men doing our part toward the world's redemption. I shall never forget that last talk we had on graduation night. You were going to the mission field and I was going to take a church. We had brave dreams of usefulness and you have realized them. I look back across 25 years, I can see some lives I have helped and some things which I have been permitted to do that were worthwhile, but sitting here tonight, I am more than half convinced that God cannot use me as a minister. If he could, I'm not big enough and brave enough to pay the price. Even if it leads you to write me down as a coward, I'm going to tell you what I think and why I quit. Throughout these years, I have found not a few earnest, unselfish, consecrated Christians. I do not believe that I am especially morbid or unfair in my estimate. So far as I know, my own heart, I'm not bitter. But through all these years, a conviction has been growing within me that the average church member cares precious little about the kingdom of God and its advancement or the welfare of his fellow man. He is a Christian in order that he may save a soul from hell and for no other reason. He does as little as he can, lives as indifferently as he dares. If he uh, thought he could gain heaven without even lifting a finger for others, he would jump at the chance. Never have I known more than a small minority of any church which I have served to be really interested in and unselfishly devoted to God's work. It took my whole, uh, it took my whole time to pull and push and urge and persuade the reluctant members of my church to undertake a little something. They took a covenant to be faithful in attendance upon the services of the church, and not one out of ten even thought of attending a prayer meeting. A large percentage seldom attend church in the morning and a pitiful small number in the evening. It didn't seem to mean anything to them that they had dedicated themselves to the service of Christ. I'm tired tired of being the only one in the church from whom real sacrifice is expected, tired of straining and tugging to get Christian people to live like Christians, tired of planning work for planning work and for my people and then being compelled to do it myself or see it left undone, tired of dodging my creditors when I wouldn't need to if I was given what was due, tired of the vision of penniless old age. I'm not leaving Christ. I love him. I shall try to serve him. Judge me leniently, old friend. I can't bear to lose your friendship, yours as of old, William. Now, there's a man in the ministry that's discouraged. And that discouragement caused him to leave his church, his ministry, and the work of God. We all face temptation and get discouraged. Even the most gifted, the most faithful, Paul was discouraged. He was hurting. He was looking for Titus. Titus was nowhere to be found. He took some more time to get there. And Paul was, he was certainly discouraged. 
And the Apostle Paul's departure was prompted by this riot. So he left discouraged. He gets to, uh, to Troas looking for Titus. He doesn't find him. He's discouraged. He finally does get to Macedonia and he finds him and he's encouraged by finding him. Um, and we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 and 6, for when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. So Paul's discouraged. He's defeated. He still starts a church in Troas, but when he gets to Macedonia, he's got trouble on every side, and he's got fightings and fears. Verse 6, nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down comforteth us by the coming of Titus. It's interesting when we read verse 12 here in our passage. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. But taking leave of them, that was the church that he had started, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now, he's discouraged here. But there's a, a complete change, a complete change when we get to verse number 14. He's discouraged here in 12 and in 13, but when we get to 14, he says, Now thanks be unto God, which, ca which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of, uh, in, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Paul goes from overwhelmed, discouraged, defeated to triumph. How does he do that? And triumph is very interesting because a Roman general was the only one that usually could get a triumph. A triumph was a fantastic honor certain requirements had to be met. He must have been an actual commander-in-chief in the field. War must have been completely finished. A minimum of 5,000 of the enemy must have fallen in an engagement. A positive extension of the territory must have been gained for Rome, and the victory must have been a foreign war, not a civil war. The triumph was a parade that commenced with the victorious general marching through the streets of Rome to the capital. It's interesting that Paul knows about this. It's possible that he actually witnessed one of these. Paul used things that he saw in his life, for we wrestle not. When he talks about that, he's talking about wrestling. Fight the good fight of faith. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all. He used these athletic metaphors, and he used the things around him to explain things to the people and to us. And so he uses the term triumph. 
And he uses that in verse 14. How does he go from discouragement, depression, defeat, to triumph? It's real simple. He had to win the battle over discouragement. And you and I need to win the battle over discouragement. Honestly, I don't really know what's going on in my brain. I tell people and they laugh, and I'm not laughing because something's not right. And so I'm going to go see somebody uh, of what, when I get back, I got to go make some appointments and find out what's going on. But how do you win when you're defeated, you're discouraged, things aren't going your way, you're maybe even a little anxious and worried? You have to win the battle over discouragement. How do we do that? It's real simple. Number one, we win the battle over discouragement by thanking the Lord for the victory. Look at verse number 14. But thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph. See, the key is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving isn't just something we celebrate in, thank, in, um, in, in November. Thanksgiving is something that we should celebrate all the time. We ought to be the most thankful people in the world. Um, the last thing that we need to be is downtrodden and miserable. And Paul was. But immediately things began to change when he started getting thankful. Church, you know what God wants you to be? Thankful. He wants me to be thankful for the victory. This victorious conquering general would come. He stood in the magnificent chariot adorned with ivory and plates of gold and drawn by two or four beautiful white horses. The general was adorned with a purple robe. In his hand, he carried an ivory scepter with the Roman eagle on top of it. And everybody knew he triumphed. He triumphed. He finished everything the way he was supposed to finish it. And he was victorious. Children of God are the most miserable people sometimes you can ever run into. How you doing? What do you mean by that? I mean I'm getting away from you. That's what I mean. (laughs) Church, we need to be thankful. Thankful. As I was riding through Louisiana, I was reminded you got a lot to be thankful for. Regardless of how things turn out, thanksgiving, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. God expects you and I to be thankful because we have the victory. Number two, Paul won the battle over discouragement by thanking the Lord for his victory. And then number two, by thanking the Lord for his fragrance. Look at verse number 15. For we are 
unto God a sweet savor of Christ to them that are saved and to them that perish. In the Old Testament, they had those sweet-smelling sacrifice offerings where God would smell them in the nostrils that he doesn't have. I can't figure it out either. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so they, we utilize terms. We use big-time words like, um, I don't even remember them, see? We, we use big words uh, to describe figurative expressions so that these spiritual truths can come into our hearts. They were sweet, and they were sweet in the nostrils of God. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If you want the fragrance of Christ in your life, be a servant. Be a servant. Be a slave. When Christ is truly leading your life, his fragrance will be upon you. Others will notice the change in your life. They will know the difference in the way you live and treat others because they're watching you. 2 Corinthians 3.2, ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. By thanking the Lord for our fragrance, thanking the Lord for our victory. And then the last thing, by thanking the Lord for our integrity. Look at verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. And we're not going to change what the scriptures teach. I had... um. I started a job working just just a day, really more of a ministry outreach at a funeral home. And um, I've I've got a. I was telling my wife. I said, look, the the place is it, it's it's class A. It, it's 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 one of the one of the best organized places there is. But there's a lot of pressure, and there's also toxicity uh, with certain leaders. And I said to her, I said, look, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. There's enough pressure at the church. I don't need to add more pressure to my life. Maybe it's just I need, need some rest, amen? That could be it. Um, but preachers only work on Wednesdays and Sundays, so I should have plenty of rest, amen? Sleep all day the rest of the week. And, um, and I, I can just feel I'm tired. I, I know I am. I'm worn out. But, and there's a lot of that pressure. And I said, this week I'm going to go tell the owner that I'm not going to do any more work. And I'm going to give him two weeks. And I only work once a week, so I'm going to give him two days and she said, well, just tell him you're done and be done. I said, I'm not doing that. And see, when you get fired, you don't get two weeks. I know that. But if, 
there's going to be somebody that has some integrity. It better be us. And that funeral home is a half a mile from the church, and everybody knows where I am. You know what we need to be? We need to be people of integrity and people of honesty. And Paul's saying, we're not like those preachers that go down to Corinth and all they're in this thing for, and they peddle this word, and they do whatever they can do to get money out of you. We're going to tell you what's right. You know, you don't need a preacher to tickle your ears. You don't need a preacher to give you what you think you need. I had this young man, well, he's not young, he's my age, so this young man, he came to me after, he said, after church today, he said, he said, preacher, when I'm going to be back in 10 minutes, I'm going to drop my son off. I said, okay. I didn't know if he was going to come and we were going to fight or what, but I was ready. Amen? And um, he's a gangster from New Haven, for real. I mean, he's tatted up, and he's mean. And if you look at him, hey, he might want, you might think he want to kill you, but he's a good dude. He really is. He got saved, and he just I just love stories like that. You know what he said to me? He said, I was tough. He said, but you know something? Everything you said, I'm going through. He said, did I call you yesterday or this morning? I said, no. He said, man, everything you said, it was going on in my house. I said, let me tell you what an old preacher told me one day. Old-fashioned Bible preaching ought to make you think the preacher's been looking in your window. I said, now know this. I haven't been looking in your window. And Pastor Gaylord ain't been looking in your window, amen? He's got too many projects around here to be looking in anybody's window. What people need is they need grace, but too much grace and it's goop. They need truth, but if it's too much truth, it's brutality. They need grace and truth. And that's what people need in church. You know what a lot of folks want? They want to talk about love. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I've never heard when people say, you ought to preach on love. Okay, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, love the father that's not in him. For all that is of the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Ain't nothing wrong with my long-term memory, amen? I just can't figure out who Aiden is, amen? <laughs> I don't know what's wrong. My long-term memory is fine. I don't know what's going on, but the bottom line is, church, hey, yeah, we ought to love. But that doesn't mean we can't give folks truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. People need the truth of God, and they need somebody that's not just going to be in this thing for the green. They're just not going to be in it for that. They're going to give people the word of God just the way it says it in the Scripture. We don't change it. This morning, Luke chapter 11, 23, he, he that is not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. He said that. I didn't say that. Now, you know what a lot of folks would do? Well, let me tell you what. Nobody wants a philosophy lesson. They need a theological lesson. He that's not with me is against me. 
Are you with Christ? No, you're against them. That's it. Here's what Paul was saying. I thank God that I don't have to manipulate the word. Paul started thinking and being reminded of some things that he was thankful for. You don't know how to win the battle of discouragement? Mm 